And I ask that you take God's word in your hands and turn to uh, the book of Exodus this morning. And we're coming to the end of our series. We've got one more week next week. And this whole summer, we've been devoting our time together looking at the Ten Commandments. And uh, for many, I've heard over and over again that this is a study uh, that uh, has really been enlightening to them. And uh, always then begs the question, were any of my other series enlightening to them? But this one has been for, I think, myself as well, because we look at the Ten Commandments and we sit there and say, yeah, I've got those down. And yet what we're learning is as we've grown through these and walked through each of these commandments that we're learning that uh, the law was something that was, as we know from Scripture, impossible to fulfill. And so we haven't gotten these things down. In fact, we're a long way from them. We're going to learn that as we examine the ninth commandment this morning. And we're going to do so under the heading, You Can't Handle the Truth. And so I'm going to ask, as we always do, that we would stand for the reading of God's Word. It's a short passage once again, but it's God's Word nonetheless. And let me read this for us. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, gives the simple command, You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Let's let's take a moment and pray. Father God, we have sung your praises this morning. Uh, We do so because you are worthy of the praise. You are worthy of our adoration. You are worthy of us coming into this place and lifting our voices to you. Now, Lord, we turn to your word. Without your word, we would be lost. Without your word, Lord, we would still be lost in our sin. And so, Lord, I'm thankful for this word, the word that gives life, the word that gives salvation, the word that gives direction. And, Lord, while these commandments have been hard to swallow for each and every one of us, we recognize that, as Paul says, all of us have sinned and fall short of your glory, fall short of what you require of us. And so, Lord, once again, we come, we recognize our sin, We recognize our inability to do this on our own, and we invite your Holy Spirit into our hearts this morning, into this place in a new way so that we might be a people who are transformed by your word. Teach us, Lord. I pray that what I say will only bring you glory and honor. And Lord, I pray that you'll speak through me now in a positive way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we come to commandment number nine only got one more to go, and we come to this one uh, that seems uh, to, again, be straightforward. And again, if we just take it at face value, uh, many of us will be able to say, yep, I've got this one down again. Every time I think that uh, I'm going to come in and going to fail, I got this one. I I don't have any problem because I've never had to stand trial and uh, put my hand on a Bible and give an oath or a witness against my neighbor, and I've never done so in a false way. And yet we're going to learn this morning that the issue of falsehood and truth is far greater than we would ever know without the Word of God enlightening our hearts. We live in a world that is filled with lies, and we're going to talk about that this morning. Again, under the heading, You Can't Handle the Truth. Not too long ago, I saw a movie that's been around for some time, but the movie was about a military court case that involved this line and this line that was given of course the movie that I'm talking about is A Few Good Men starring Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson and in the courtroom scene and I'll show you the clip in a moment it is the climax of the entire movie it all comes to this one statement because there's some wrongdoing that has been done 
And what we're going to hear is Jack Nicholson say, you can't handle the truth. And the reason why is because what is about to be exposed, the truth is going to create major ripple effects within the military in this courtroom scene. So let's go ahead and watch this short clip and give us a reminder of why we can't handle the truth. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! A memorable line from a movie that would change, of course, the whole uh, scenario of what was going on in the text. And yet I want to draw out from our friend Jack Nichol, uh, Nicholson um, what our culture struggles with. We're a world, we're a culture that struggles with lies. We've bought into lies and we struggle with the issue of truth. Here's the reason why. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, that humanity, all of humanity, has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Do you know that if you are not in Christ, you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, that you have bought into a lie? Maybe you didn't come thinking you were going to hear that at church today, but I want you to know you've bought into a lie. I don't say it. God does. You've exchanged the truth for, uh, of God for a lie. It's because of this that Chuck Colson, a man, an evangelical leader who just passed away not too long ago, said that we in our society today live in a post-truth culture. George Orwell, the writer, said that in a world of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. We live in a world where it is odd for us to tell the truth. We live in a world where it seems odd to the world for us to be ethically right in our speech. We are in a world that tells us that what was once seen as objective, a standard by which all men and women should live, now is relative. And as a result of that, because of that, we live in a world where people lie. And the integrity of our speech in this culture now says that it is okay for you to share falsehoods. It's okay for you to stretch the truth. It's okay for you to exaggerate to epic proportions because it is totally expected that we as people will spin the truth. Because spin is the name of the game, isn't it? From our marketing to our politics. In this world of politics that we live in right now, of course, because of the fall elections, it's amazing that every time a uh, politician gets up to talk, they will quickly have the segment after the politician's done with his speech, and they will have the fact checkers, right? Is what he's saying true, or is he lying? And here's the problem. Because we live in a world of falsehoods, right away the politician talks, and they say, well, is he telling the truth or not? And my question is, are the fact-checkers telling the truth or not? We can't even trust one another because we know that lying is so pervasive in the world that we live in. With the beginning of college football this last weekend, who can forget the name George O'Leary? Many of you probably have, but George O'Leary uh, was on top of the world in 2001 because he had just been offered the creme de la creme job in college football, the opportunity, of course, to coach the Notre Dame Fighting Irish football team. George O'Leary was looking forward to leading that team out of the tunnel. He was looking forward to hearing the crowd of Notre Dame Stadium in uproar, cheering for their team. But George O'Leary would never spend a moment coaching that team. He would never have a team meeting. He would never hold a team practice. And he would never even make it into the record books of Notre Dame. Why? Because George O'Leary, two days into being a coach, would be found out of lying throughout his resume. 
saying he did things that he didn't. The amazing thing is, of course, George O'Leary lost his job and forever would be shamed, and yet statistics tell us that 60% of us on our resumes lie to get a job that we want. We're just like George. How about the individual who, and I forgot to write down his name in my notes, but the man that wrote uh, the uh, best-selling book that Oprah made famous in her book club. Remember, he tells of the chronicles of his life, and it sells millions of copies, makes him an overnight millionaire. Only four months after it had become the book uh, of the month by Oprah Winfrey to have it then be found out that all of the facts within the book were all made up that he hadn't lived that life. He hadn't struggled with those things. And of course, Oprah, the the great barometer that she is, uh, brings him on and chastises him for being one who told falsehoods and lies. Called him really everything under the sun because she was so betrayed by his falsehoods. We are a people who don't tell the truth. We lie in our studies. We lie in our speech. We're, We're liars because we're told the Bible tells us that the father, our father, the devil, was a liar, and he's been lying ever since the beginning. And because of that, because we are like our father, the devil, as humanity, we lie in courtrooms, of course, that's called perjury. We lie to cover up our failures. We lie so that we can puff ourselves up. We lie by winking our eye, and sometimes we lie through just the blatant lies that we speak through our mouth. We do it through half-truths. We do it through exaggeration. We even do it through words of flattery. The issue is, as Jack said on that movie clip, we lie because we can't handle the truth. And the problem is, is that we as Christians, we wade through this garbage, this cesspool of half-truths and deceits, and we find ourselves doing many of the same things. A study was done not too long ago of Christians on is it okay, are there certain situations where telling a lie is okay, and overwhelmingly, somewhere in the effect of 70% of Christians, evangelical Christians said, there are times and places where a lie is okay. Brothers and sisters, we have fallen from the truth, and in a world that fiction and fact has grown blurry, we can't help but wonder why 80% of our young people will leave high school with the idea that there is no such thing as objective truth. What I want to do with our moments this morning is I want to start out with a 10,000 foot down view at this issue of truth, and then I want to bring it to our interpersonal relationships and deal with the commandment. So stick with me. We'll get to the commandment in a moment, but I want to build an argument. I want to build a premise that truth is necessary. We have to have the truth. Even at times when we can't handle it, we have to have it. And I want you to notice, first of all, that we have to have the truth. Truth is necessary, first of all, in the regulation of all societies. The regulation of all societies. Before we can deal with talking about false testimony against our neighbors, we must recognize that there is an objective standard called truth. There's a standard by which we must live by. But can I tell you, over the past couple centuries, since the Enlightenment period in Europe, truth has been under attack. It started to be under attack, first of all, just let me help you, first of all, by the guy named the devil in the Garden of Eden. I'll get to him in a moment. He's not the devil, by the way. That's my fault, Dennis. I kind of led you that way. You were ready to put that up. But that's not the devil. We'll get to that guy in a moment. But if you remember in the Garden of Eden, remember Eve starts having a conversation with the serpent. 
And the question that the devil asks is, did God really say? Brothers and sisters, can I tell you, the first one to really ask and make truth relative was the devil. And then about Five or 6,000 years later, this guy comes along. Let's start with him. This guy's name is Immanuel Kant. And Kant was a philosopher. He was a French philosopher, and, and he had a lot of thoughts on the issue of truth. And what he did over uh, years of writing was establish this understanding, that truth in and of itself was not objective, but that truth was found in the individual. And so a couple hundred years ago, this philosopher created what we would see as the entitlement uh, era of our times, where truth would become something that what used to be over the individual now was found within the individual. Okay? Now stick with me. I know philosophy is not something you want to deal with on a Sunday morning. But what that meant was, Kant, Kant said, truth was found in Tim. Tim was the umbrella of truth. Likewise, so was Steve. And so Steve would have a truth, and he, through, the through him being an individual, would exercise his understanding of what truth was. Now, it didn't really take a huge effect uh, until about 50 years ago, especially here within America. And what we began to have happen is that Kant became alive and well in our culture. And you hear it in one statement. What may be true for you is not true for me. That's Immanuel Kant. Because if I am the one, the arbiter of truth, then I determine what is true for me, and you determine what's true for you, and you do what's true for you, and I'll do what's true for me, and everybody will be all hunky-dory, right? And that's being propagated in our colleges all over the place. And it sounds great, and it sounds wonderful, because what it says is, Tim, you can do whatever you want, and Steve can do whatever he wants, and the rest of you can do whatever you want, and because you're doing what you want, you're happy, I'm happy, everybody's happy, right? Give the universal sign of displeasure. Because that's what it is. It doesn't add up. And while in a college classroom it may sound good, I want to show you in three areas why truth must be objective. First of all, we see that truth must be a part of our society because it affects our everyday life. It affects our everyday life. Truth has to reign supreme. I want you to look, everybody who's got a watch on this morning, I want you to look at your watch. And within a minute or two, I'm going to believe that everybody's going to see, and I'm looking at the back clock there, and it tells me that it is 1142. Is that about right? Now, what happens if I woke up this morning and I didn't like that it says 1142? But quite frankly, I, I got to be honest with you, for a couple years now, I haven't liked the 24-hour time frame. I want 28 hours in my time frame, right? Can I live according to 28-hour clock, the Tim Bidall clock? What's that going to happen to society? What's going to happen to Tim if I live according to a 28-hour clock instead of a 24-hour clock? It's gonna, I'm going to have trouble. There's going to be problems. So let's say I'm at a meeting. Uh, we have Labor Day tomorrow. We have a meeting on Tuesday. And the meeting, everybody says, okay, we're going to meet at noon. Well, if everybody has a relative idea that noon means what it means to you, well, then nobody's going to be there on time. We have to understand that time we live according to an objective truth. And it's not just us for Americans. We don't say, you know, as Americans, we're going to do this time. 
Okay, we're going to live on a 30-hour day instead of a 24-hour day. We all live according to what is called the Greenwich Mean Time. We've all agreed that that's the objective standard. And how could you have flights? How could you have meetings? How could you have society even operate if we didn't agree on the same time frame? So there's objective truth with regards to that, even though people say truth is relative. I have a trusty little friend here. It's called a tape measure. All right? And I look, and I see these 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and I count to 12, and I get out of those 1 through 12, once I get to 12, we call it a, a foot. Some of you are like, I don't know. A foot. Now, what if I think a foot should be 16 inches? Who's right and who's wrong? Well, I'm wrong. Well, who says I'm wrong? The tape measure does. I hope you're understanding what I'm trying to get to because we live in a world that says if I say something is something, then it is something. If I feel a certain way and I want something to be a certain way, then my definition becomes the ruling definition of it. Brothers and sisters, I can call a foot 18 inches and it's still wrong. Let me tell you, the greatest, most robust postmodernist who says that truth is relative still wants a modernist, one who believes in objective truth building their house. Have you thought about that? One who says the truth is relative. The guy comes to your house, he's going to build your house, and he's like, you know what? Okay, so I want a room 15 by 18. Are you going to measure it out? I don't need a tape measure because I'm feeling like 15 feet today is this wide. And you're going to be like, forget it. I'm going to go find someone who pulls out a tape measure and who objectively says that 15 feet is 15 units of 12 inches. Because i got to have that. Because if I don't have that, there's going to be chaos. We see it in everyday life. Brothers and sisters, can I tell you, we see it in our relationship of love. We see it within the relationship of love. I'm going to keep this here for a second. We see it within the relationship of love. Without trust and without truth, there is no relationship. Without objective truth, hear me out, you'll have anarchy. If I can't trust you and you can't trust me that there are some objective rules that are going to govern who we are, then we got nothing. Because I can't trust what you're going to do because if you're going to do what is according to who you are, then I'll never know, are you on the same page? I've got to trust that my wife is going to come into this relationship with me and love me and care for me and uh, share life together with me and build camaraderie with me. I've got to trust that she's going to do that. And if she is untrustworthy and she's living on any kind of free and fancy life, then I'm in trouble because I'm going to live in constant fear that I'm going to wake up in the morning and my wife is going to be gone. And so we can't have relationships unless there's objective truth. The final area that we see is in law and order. Now, we come to this stoplight over here at 47 in Bliss, and aren't you glad that there's no postmodernists when it comes to traffic? You have a green light, and what are you assuming that the other cars are doing that are on the other cross street? They're stopping, right? Because if I have a green light, which means go, red means well, I'm glad there's no postmodernists in our world that say, you know, really stop. Red to me really means just go and punch it. If we have that, then we're, gonna, we're not going to drive because we'll be scared to death and nobody is doing what they're supposed to and they're going to go whenever they want to. And I will tell you, you will have chaos. And that is the reason why in our courts we say, you swear to tell the truth, 
the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God. And the reason why is we have to have a standard. And there has to be law and there has to be order. And if there isn't objective truth, then there is anarchy. And it's what the book of Judges says that everybody does what is right in their own eyes. You do what you want, I do what I want, and everybody will be happy, right? Here's the problem. We see postmodernism falls apart in the line at the drinking fountain at the local elementary school. Because someone says, hey, a line means I can cut in line. I can do what I want. And so the individual, the kid goes, forget about the line. I'm just going to go and I'm going to cut in line. And what is everybody else going to do in that line? They're going to get angry. You've cut in line. You've broken the objective truth that you can't cut in line when you're waiting for the drinking fountain. And we see postmodernism fall and fall again. Now here's the issue. You say, Tim, what's all this philosophy all about? Let's deal with a definition for a moment, the definition of marriage between a man and a woman. And our culture says, well, that's not the definition anymore. We have a new definition. It doesn't involve a man and woman. It can involve really two men, two women. Really, it doesn't matter. And when you say, as a Christian, that's not truth, you're called offensive, you're called a bigot, and you're called intolerant. Let's play this picture. You pull out the tape measure, and you say, all right, so you want the house uh, carpet now to be two feet long. All right, so I bring out my tape measure, and two feet's 24 inches. And the person says, well, I don't believe it to be 24 inches. You say, but the, the ruler says that. And they look at you and say, you bigot. How intolerant. Who makes you think who you are? Who makes you think who you are that, that 24 inches is two feet? And our response is, because the objective ruler says so. Brothers and sisters, when we deal with the issue of the definition of marriage, we deal with an objective truth. All of society, for all of time, has said marriage is between one man and one woman. Brothers and sisters, the reason why we are losing this debate is because we live in a world that has given up the truth for a lie. And we've thrown out the ruler. What's the ruler? The ruler is God's word. And when we throw out God's word, then we're in trouble. Brothers and sisters, this isn't just simply a new definition. This will shake the very fabric of who we are. And so what we need to tell people is that there is a truth, and the truth is found in God himself. I want you to notice the second point this morning. And the second point is that it is found in our relationship with Jesus Christ. So where do we find truth? We find it in Christ Jesus. We find it in Christ Jesus. So we see that camp is alive and well, and we see what happens. Paul says that when we give up God and we exchange the truth for a lie, all kinds of debauchery, all kinds of sin, all kinds of trouble will come. And as a result of that, we will find ourselves in all kinds of trouble and pain. And the gospel is admits that, admits us buying into the lie of the devil because he's the father of lies and he's been lying since the beginning. Christ comes and he says, I'm the truth. I want you to know that, first of all, truth is seen in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, number one, in uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 4, he tells us that he has come from the Father who is truth. So Jesus comes from a place of truth. In 1 John 4, 6, it is said that Jesus was filled with the spirit of truth. 
It then tells us when he came to earth that he took on flesh. He made his dwelling among us, John 1.14. And John says that he was filled with grace and, help me out, truth. He was filled with truth. And then because of that, Jesus says on the night that he was betrayed and arrested, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, what Jesus came to do is he came to set us free. Because that's what truth does. I want you to write this down. It's not in your outlines. I added it last night. And that was that truth sets the captive free. We're in bondage to the devil. We're buying his lies that what we are to live for is self. And the devil says, take care of yourself, feed yourself, do all the things that make yourself feel good, and address all of the pleasures that your body wants. If you want it, grab it. And the devil's advertising that. And he's advertising it big time, and we're buying into it. What Tim wants to do, Tim should do, because Tim's number one. And we've bought into it, and we wonder why our lives are a mess. And Jesus comes, and he says, hey, I'm the one who sets you free. I'm the one who frees you from that. Because I tell you that your world doesn't revolve around you, it revolves around God. And when you get that priority straight, when you get that worked out right, that foundation's gonna set you free. And when we understand who God is and that he is the truth and he is the standard and he is the perfection that we should be pursuing, then and only then are we set free from our sin. But notice it doesn't end because truth sanctifies the Christian. What do I mean by that? It sets us apart. In John 17, 17, Jesus is praying. He's praying for himself, and then he moves to praying for his disciples, and he prays for us. And in his prayer, he says to the Father, sanctify my disciples by truth. Your word is truth. And so as believers, we're set free from the bondage of the lies of the devil. And then our job is to go to God's holy word and to open it, and we are to see how we are to live. Because God's word is truth. And here's the reason why. Because there seems, there's a path that seems right to man. There's a path that seems right to Tim. And God says, when you're on your own, it will lead to destruction. And so God's word says, this is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so when my feelings, when, when I, when I want to redefine things, when I want to come up with new words for things, when I want to come up with a new objective truth for something that has already been settled, God's word says, Tim, oh, Tim, don't think you can change the rules of the ball game. I've laid them out. I'm the judge. I'm the one who needs to do it. And the word is going to sanctify us. It's going to change us. It's going to challenge us. It's going to grow us. And that's why uh, the Bible is so important to the life of the Christian. But notice one final thing. It strengthens our conviction as Christians. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to 1 Thessalonians, New Testament. About, about midway, three-quarters of the way through the New Testament, you'll find books like First and Second Timothy. Um, and just before that, of course, is First and Second Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul is encouraging the people at Thessalonica. He's encouraging them. He's wanting to give them hope. And at the end of his letter, he shares these words in First Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. He says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through 
and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body, all of who you are is what Paul's saying, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. That word faithful can be translated as well as trustworthy or the one who is truthful will see you through. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know something. We have put our faith and our hope in this Jesus. We have put our eternal destiny that this Jesus who said he came from God, that he was 100% God and 100% man, came to earth, lived a perfect life, did so 2,000 years ago because we haven't seen him, nor have we heard him. We don't know what he looks like. We don't know what his voice sounds like. But we have written down these words that he preached and proclaimed and what others said about him. This truth of this Jesus who lived a life of perfection, the Bible says he died on the cross. And we believe that, that on that cross, the blood that was shed was imputed onto my behalf making me no longer an enemy of God, no longer a sinner, but now one who is saved. Now, brothers and sisters, can I tell you something? What happens if God is lying? Paul says we should be pitied amongst all men. But here's what God says. I'm truthful. I always tell the truth. There's no lies. There's no deceit in me. Isaiah prophesying of Jesus said no deceit was found on his lips. Jesus is 100% true. He was always true. He never lied. He never fudged the truth. He never gave a little white lie. Jesus always told the truth. And because Jesus always tells the truth, that he who has called you to the gospel of Jesus Christ is faithful to see you to the end. He who began a good work in you is faithful, is trustworthy, is truthful to see you to the end. And so when we stand before Jesus, we don't have to stand with fear and trepidation, but we can stand with full assurance of faith that the one who called us is faithful. Now you say, Tim, what in the world? We've just spent a whole bunch of time and you haven't even touched on the issue of the commandment. Well, I want to spend the next hour talking about that. Okay, so let's get to the commandment. You say, how in the world does all this, Tim, you just went on this philosophy thing? What is all of this? I want you to understand that when we tell that little white lie, the devil says it's not really anything big, and you should do that because you don't want to hurt your mom's feelings about her cooking because it's really not all that good, and you don't want to hurt her feelings. So, yeah, Mom, it's wonderful, best food I've ever had. And that's okay to say, and that's right, but here's the thing. You see, lying is easy for us to do in our society if there's no objective truth. If there's no one who's the standard, there's no one who is telling the truth all the time, then who cares if we lie? Who cares if we bear false witness? But when we put God, and this is what the world fails to presume, that there is a God, a personal creator God, who is the judge and arbiter for that which is good and that which is evil. I don't get to make the rules. You don't get to make the rules. God gave us rules. We've been studying for them the last 10 weeks. And so I can't do what I want and not think that judgment isn't going to come upon me. God says, I am the one who created all things, and I'm going to determine how they go. And God must laugh. He must laugh when we say, you know what, I know you did this, but I'm going to redefine it. 
Are you kidding me? You little man, you're going to redefine that which I've put in order in existence? You've got to be kidding me. And yet we do that every day. And so we need to understand that when we bear false witness, we're not just telling a little white lie. We are an affront to a holy God. And so let's address this. Because one of the areas that we see over and over again is that truth is important and it's totally necessary when it comes to the reputation of others. The reputation of others. Now we get to the commandment. You're like, that is the single longest introduction I've ever heard in my life. Okay? You're exaggerating, by the way, and that's a sin. Okay? So we've got the reputation of others. The context of this commandment is a courtroom. You're a witness and you're brought in to testify before uh, a judge or a jury within the nation of Israel. And Moses is commanded by God that when you do that, you are not to lie. In that setting, you are not to lie. You are not to bear false witness about your neighbor. Well, there's a couple things that we've got to know. First of all, our neighbor isn't just the person that we live next to. We've learned this over and over again. Our neighbor is everyone around us. The second thing we have to remember is within the context of each of the commandments that are given, each command stands as the greater and it deals with everything down to the least. And what I mean by that is when we look at each of these commandments, especially what we call the horizontal commandments, the commandments of one another, we recognize that these commandments are important. We're to honor all relationships, commandment number five. But the greatest honoring that needs to be done is children to their parents. I mean, if you're going to honor anybody, we're going to assume you're going to honor mom and dad. And and when you fail at that, you fail at the greatest breaking of honoring. How about in the area of taking one's life? The hurting or the maiming or the uh, pursuit of um, pain in the life of other is the greatest sin of all of those is the taking of one's life. And so God says, let's deal with that one and then everything underneath. It's a category. How about the issue of fornication, sexual sin? The greatest of those is seen, not that they're greater one or the other, but the greatest affront is for me to do that as a married man who I'm in a covenant relationship with my wife, Amanda, and to go outside of that and break that covenant. And God says, okay, all fornication is bad, but let's start with the greatest of them. And then with regards to all of these commands. And so here this comes to the courtroom and he says, of all places that you could bear false witness, the worst place you could do it is in the courtroom. You're under oath, you're standing before God, you're standing before your fellow man, and you blow it by lying, perjuring yourself. And yet we'll see that he starts with the greatest and he reduces down. There's a couple things we want to explore with regards to this reputation. What is a reputation? Why is it so important that we protect this? Because number one, it's a valuable possession. It's a valuable possession. Proverbs 22.1 tells us that your good name is of greater worth than all fine jewels. That's all we've got, right? It's our good name. Now, why is it that a reputation is so important? I want you to write these down. Reputation, first of all, will determine the amount of respect you get. You're either going to be known as a respectable man or a woman, and it's going to be based on your good name. If you're known as a thief, if you're known as a swindler, if you're known as uh, someone who is not a very kind or nice person, then the respect you're going to receive from people is going to be very small. And so we've got to be careful with other people's reputations because it is the level of respect that they're going to get. People are going to determine how they interact with you as an individual based on your reputation. The second thing that you need to understand is going to determine the amount of responsibility you receive. 
the amount of responsibility. So let's say you're sitting in Hinkley, and my name comes up, and you're sitting around with a group of people, and there's someone says, hey, you know anything about Timbadal? And you break the ninth commandment. You say, that Badal man, what is up with him? That guy can't be trusted. That guy's a swindler. He's a manipulator. He's a liar. And you just you waylay my whole reputation. And I'm not there. And I'm not the wiser. I'm not a part of that conversation. And so little do I know, but uh, the form comes home from school. Hey, we're looking for coaches for the uh, uh, soccer teams. And I think, what a great way to get involved with my kids. And I sign up and say, you know what, I'll, I'll help coach the team. And one of the individuals that was sitting there at the table at the cafe when you were waylaying me and my reputation sees my name come across. And they're like, oh, yeah, Tim Bidall signed up. And the lady's like, no, not Tim Bidall. I heard he's manipulative. I hear he's a schemer. I hear he's not. He's the last person we want with the kids. What did I just lose out on? An opportunity to spend time with my kids, an opportunity to, to uh, be involved in the life of children. Why? Not because I lost my opportunity because of something I did, but because someone said something that wasn't true. Our reputation determines the respect we're going to receive and the responsibility we're going to give. And I want you to think about that as we work through because we are going to notice it's a valuable possession, but our reputations can be vandalized publicly. Notice that this commandment cannot be done on your own. Look at that. For you to give false witness or false testimony against your neighbor, someone has to hear it. I can't just bear false testimony by myself. I'm thinking, you know, you know that's Steve Tassie. You know, Tim, I was thinking, yeah, that's Steve Tassie. He just, he's a weird guy. I don't want to be with him. I don't like him. It doesn't work. I don't break the ninth commandment that way. The way I do it is I go to someone else and I say, that's Steve Tassie. Let me tell you about him. And so the only way we can do it is we do it publicly. And so we got to tell someone else. And so the way we bear false witness, or false testimony against our neighbor is we go to someone else publicly. And publicly means we're not private with me and Steve. We're not talking about it together. Now I've gone outside of it and I've publicly gone to my brother Abraham and I say, Abraham, have you heard about Steve Tassie? Man, that guy, man, he always sits in the front row and you know why he does that? Because he thinks he's holier than us. So Abraham, I want you to know that. Now, I didn't talk with Steve about it. I didn't talk to Steve about what I was just going to say either. Okay? But now I've publicly taken Steve, and I've taken him to a place that I should have addressed privately. And what we do is we take it and we vandalize people and their reputations publicly. How do we do it? I don't got a lot of time for this, but just very quickly. We do it through lying. We just lie. We just take the truth and we throw it out the door and we just say and communicate false information. What I just shared about Steve is absolutely positively false. I don't know why Steve sits in the front pew. I'm glad he does. Someone has to. Okay? It's not because he thinks he's better than you, but I just lied. And I just told someone else about it. And so we lie and we vandalize someone. We do it through criticism. We tear down others. People who are serving around us or who were around, and, and we go, and, and people say, well, it's constructive. What I'm going to say about so-and-so is constructive. Here's the difference between constructive criticism and sinful criticism. Constructive criticism of a person involves that person. Let me say that again. Constructive criticism, 
So you say, and, and I mean, I said, you said this a lot, and I, I listen to what my wife says, and then I blow it again. But um, she says, don't talk so much about yourself with regards to this, but I'm gonna, I don't know how else to do this. You, know, you don't like my sermon. Constructive criticism says that you come up to me quietly in private and say, hey, Tim, hey, I think you're doing a good job, but I think there's some ways that you can do a better job. All right, that's helpful. Sinful criticism is you don't go to me at all, and you go to someone else, and you're like, hey, can you believe Badal? What, what, what was that? I mean, we had to waste our time listening to that? Constructive criticism always involves the person that you're criticizing. It's okay to criticize someone. We're human beings. We got failures. We got issues. But if you remove that person and you go to someone else, you've now vandalized that person in a way that they can't do anything about it. I can't do anything about it. I'm not a part of the conversation. And yet we do that all the time. We do that all the time in our speech. And we do that in the form that's called gossip. And we find ourselves talking what gossip is, is the unlawful spreading of information. It may be true, it may be false, to people that don't need to hear it. You see what that lady was wearing the other day? And she calls herself a Christian. Come on. Did you see it? No one's talked to the lady but everybody knows about it. And the poor girl, she's being judged left and right. She doesn't even know why. It's because in some small group, in some gathering somewhere, everybody was too stupid to think that they could talk about something that honored God. And so they took something and they made it an issue to talk about and they became an issue of gossip. And you know how we do it? Well, I'm not sure. Am I the only one that feels this way? So what I'll do is I'll check with three or four or 400 people and I'll ask, you know, I don't know, am I the only one that thinks what she was wearing was immodest? I just want to check, just want to do some background, you know, what do do you think? And the Bible gives us clear understandings, guys, as to what we should do. If a brother or sister offends you, go and talk with them. Go to them. If I offend you, I give you full rights. Come to me. If I've blown it, I want to know it. I don't want you going and talking to everybody under the sun. Come and talk to me. And yet I can tell you how many times I've heard prayer requests that really are just gossip with an amen at the end of it. We just gossip instead of dealing with the issue and addressing it. And when we do, we sin. How about insinuation? The practice of hinting at something being wrong in someone's life, even though it may not be. The darkest hour of my ministry almost 10 years of being the teaching pastor the darkest hour was about three minutes where an individual in this church insinuated evil upon me in front of a group of people. And I will tell you, and I'll stand till the day I'm, I'm dead, that it wasn't true. And yet it was insinuating. Can I tell you something? Those people in that room that heard that, I still have an icky feeling. Do they think that I did those things? Do they think that I said those things? insinuation destroys people. Don't do it. My biggest fear is that, that, that someone would insinuate something about me and my ministry because my good name is all that I have. If my name is put under in, in the mud, how can I stand here and preach to you? And brothers and sisters, that should be something we pray for for our leaders and pray for us as Christians because if we don't have a good name, what do we have? And if someone insinuates something, we're out of, we're, we're in trouble. I got to preach to myself very quickly, the issue of exaggeration. Oh, 
It's the easiest way to tell a lie, brothers and sisters. You go on a fishing trip and you catch a fish like this. You've been there. And then you come home and the fish is this big. I can go home and my dad will call and say, how was church? Dad, the place was packed. There was nowhere for anybody to sit. And I got done and, and man, they were weighing down palm branches for me. Dad, it was amazing. My dad's like, man, that's my boy. Way to go, son. And we know there ain't no palm branches being put down. Exaggerating is lies. And what we do is we take pathetic stories of normal life and we make them real big. And boy, am I guilty of that. The final one I want you to look at is the issue of silence. You say, Tim, wait a minute. You see, all of this comes from the sin of that piece of flesh. That it's about four ounces between your teeth called the tongue. And one of the ways that we sin with our tongue is we don't say anything. So someone's critical when they shouldn't be. Someone's gossiping when they shouldn't be. Someone is no doubt exaggerating to the fullest extent so that they can look good or they can make someone look really bad. And what do we do? We don't say anything. The Bible says when we see sin... We're to confront it. Because the reputation of an individual must be vigorously protected. And so when you hear someone being defamed, stand up for them. When you hear someone being gossiped about, stop it. And not just stop it, meaning you don't say it. You tell everybody in the room, hey, we're not going there. The only way we're going to go there is that we bring the person here and we address it because we all got logs in our eyes. Why are we pointing out her speck? Why are we doing that? Well, who am I to do that? You're to do that because the objective truth of God's word says so. But let me tell you, when we do it, the Bible says we are to speak the truth with what? Love. So do it with love. Don't tear down the person that just got involved in that sin. Love them and show them the truth. Show them the error of their ways. Show them how you have fallen to it. Because, my brothers and sisters, where I want to close with all this is if we can't be trustworthy, if we are known to be filled with lies, then how in the world will a world that's filled with lies ever believe the gospel when it comes from our mouth? So this is huge. How can we tell the, the world about Jesus Christ and the truth that is embodied in Christ if we are filled with deceit and full of lies ourselves? And so that's why Isaiah said when he stood before the awe-inspiring worship of the angels to God, when the angels are just gushing in their worship for God, Isaiah comes out and he says, I am a man of unclean lips. And I come from a people of unclean lips. Brothers and sisters, the first thing that should come to mind when we see the glory of God is how sinful we are with our mouths. And I don't know if you're, but if you're like me, we need to confess some things this morning. Because there's a lot of lies. There's a lot of half-truths. There's a lot of gossip. There's a lot of slander. And how will the world ever know the truth about Jesus if we're busy telling lies? The story is told of a pastor who had just finished preaching a message like this one. And the town gossip was there in the congregation and she came up forward with tears in her eyes and she says, I have failed at this every day of my life. The pastor says, your reputation precedes you. You're absolutely right. You're the town gossip. 
She says, what must I do? He says, you must confess your sin. She says, I will do that. And she confessed her sin before him. She says, what must I do now? He says, I want you to go to the butcher shop and I want you to get all the feathers of the recently cleaned chicken. And I want you, of every person that you spoke ill of, every person you gossiped about, every person that you slandered, I want you to go and put a feather on their doorstep. Then I want you to go home and I want you to pray and ask forgiveness once again. What do you want me to do after that, pastor? He said, after the hour is done, I want you to go and collect all the feathers. She says, it's impossible. The wind will have carried them everywhere. How will I ever get them back? He says, so is the sin of our mouth. That once we do, it is nearly impossible for us to get it back. Brothers and sisters, let us ask God's forgiveness and let us do as much as we can to go and make right those we have wronged with our mouths. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, the tongue is an amazing thing. It's a thing that when I was a baby would lull me to sleep hearing my mom's words of love and affirmation. Lord, the tongue was something that you used in my father's mouth to warn me of trouble that was coming my way. Lord, we are told that the tongue is that which will bring people to life because how can people know the gospel if someone has not preached it to them? Oh, the tongue is a great gift. And yet, Lord, today we have learned the tongue also, as James says, is a little spark that wreaks havoc in a forest because it destroys it. This little tongue can do great good and also can do great bad and great harm. So, Lord, I pray that we would be a people, first of all, who would pursue truth in all of our life, that we would be true to you and to your word, and that when we speak to one another, we would speak with truth. We would be honest. And when we have to speak the truth, and it's going to be hard and it's going to hurt, that we would do so with love and tenderness and humility. Lord, rid us of the sins of the mouth and of the tongue so that when the brother or sister who has watched us live comes and asks, what must I do to have eternal life? We can, with full integrity, say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and they will know that we are trustworthy because you are trustworthy. Lord, we're thankful that we don't have to wonder about our eternal destiny because you who has promised is faithful. Thank you for your faithfulness. And now, Lord, as we enter into an unfaithful world, that we would be true in all that we say and do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.